First Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore I exhort, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, his spiritual son, first of all, first, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings. Now, in our governmental system, that would be presidents. For presidents and all who are in authority, that'd be all elected officials, congressmen and congresswomen and mayors and governors and things like that, for all in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Reverence. So our first responsibility is to pray. My question is, why don't we pray more? Since prayer changes things, why don't we pray more? And I really believe it's because of a misunderstanding of theology that we don't pray more. I, you know, it's, uh, you've heard the old saying, I know just enough about that to be dangerous, you know? Well, unfortunately, I believe many times the church knows just enough about theology to be dangerous. And my goal is to help you understand theology and doctrine because when we really understand God, we, it, it changes everything in our lives. So um, let me give you just a little background here. The word theology comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and logia, meaning subject. Uh, now, people will say theology means the study of God, and that is a good working definition. But the literal definition is the subject or the speech of. You, you, you have, you've had classes. You've had classes in biology or geology uh, or zoology, and it's the subject of. So this is the subject of God. And when you study the subject of God, you study the characteristics of God or what we call the attributes of God. Uh, you can break words down a lot and understand words like theo and logi, all right? You can break them down. For instance, um, the word uh, attribute, just think about this, a tribute. It's a tribute. If you gave a tribute to a person, you would talk about the characteristics of that person that make that person uh, who he or she is. In the same way, the attributes of God, and break it down even farther, and you'll see the word tribe, tribe in the word attribute. And tri tribe, you talk about the distinct characteristics of a group of people. You follow me? So there are two attributes of God that I believe we have misunderstood. And because we misunderstood them, they actually cause us to pray less, but they actually should cause us to pray more. So everyone follow me? So I'm going to cover, I only have two points today. I'm going to cover two of the attributes of God that because of a misunderstanding in the body of Christ cause people to pray less, but these should cause people to pray more. All right, so here, here's number one, the sovereignty of God. Now, there's a huge misunderstanding about the sovereignty of God. And here's what happens. People actually blame tragedies on this attribute. They say, well, we just have to trust the sovereignty of God. Well, I believe in trusting the sovereignty of God, but you're misusing that right there. That's not what that's not what that means at all. In other words, we're blaming God for a lot of things that are happening in this world that God's not doing. And so the sovereignty of God, if you want to understand it, it, it doesn't mean that God does whatever he wants to. It's not what it means at all. What it means, again, you can break the word down. So look at the word sovereignty. They are sovereign, just the word sovereign, all right? Then you break it apart. You got S-O-V-E and the word reign. Now, just so you know, the second word means exactly what it says, reign. 
The S-O-V-E, though, means supreme. Supreme reign. Supreme reign. In other words, God has supreme reign. He also is the supreme ruler of the universe. So to understand this, this is, it doesn't mean that God does whatever he wants. It means that he is in complete charge and authority. But he gave stewardship of the earth to us. And the problem is he gave it to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve lost it. So let me show you something that happened in Jeremiah 32. I'll give you the historical exegesis of this passage, but then I'm going to give you the messianic exegesis. The word exegete comes from a Greek word which means to draw out, like you draw water out of a well. So when you look at a passage of Scripture, you look at the historical exegesis of it, you look at if there's a messianic exegesis, you look at the geographical exegesis, and you look at what, what many have, have discounted, and that's the revelational exegesis. In other words, what's God saying to me out of this passage, right? So let me show you this in Jeremiah 32, verse 8. It says, then Hanamel, my uncle's son, in other words, his cousin, came to me, that's Jeremiah, in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord. In other words, the Lord had already told Jeremiah this would happen. And said to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours. Notice right of inheritance and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed, I signed it, I signed the deed and sealed it. Took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. Verse 11, so I took the purchase deed, watch, both. Both, that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. Okay, so Jeremiah speaks of two deeds here. He speaks of a sealed deed and an open deed. He also speaks of two rights, a right of inheritance and a right of redemption. So let me explain those to you, all right? Um, He said, my uncle's son came to me and said, buy this field back. What that means is his uncle had bought that field from his mother. Probably what had happened is that Jeremiah's father had died. And so the brother the, uncle, the father's brother, the uncle, bought the field so the family would have money to live on. Because it was in the family of Jeremiah, Jeremiah then would have been the firstborn son because he had the right of redemption. So the cousin comes to him and says, hey, buy the field back. Now you're old enough. It probably happened. His father probably passed away when he was young, so they couldn't work the field, so they needed money. Now that he's grown up, they can work the field and make a, make a living. So he said, buy it back. And this is what he said, for the right of inheritance is yours. That means he's the firstborn son. So that means when the uncle dies, he's going to get it back anyway. The field will go back to him. The right of inheritance is yours, and the right of redemption is yours. In other words, you're the nearest firstborn male. You're the nearest kinsman. You're the firstborn. You can buy it back. So you have the right of inheritance and the right of redemption. Okay, hold on to those, all right? Then you have a sealed deed and open deed. The sealed deed was the family that it belonged to. And that land always went back to the original family, the bloodline of that family always went back to them when someone would pass away. But there was an open deed so that if they needed to sell the land for money, they could take that deed and they could write on it whose name it was, like Hannah Mel, the uncle. But that seal deed always was with the original family. 
Okay, you say, well, what does all this mean? Well, uh, historically, it was that they were being taken out of the land for 70 years to be in captivity to Babylon, and God was saying, I want you to do this because I want to say to my people, you will again be brought back to this land, and you will own land again. That's what it meant historically. But what does it mean messianically? It is a type and a shadow of Jesus Christ himself because Jesus is the firstborn son. God gave the open deed to Adam and Eve, to the earth, the open deed. But God kept the sealed deed. But he gives the open deed to Adam and Eve. They lost it to Satan. Satan actually said to Jesus when he was tempting them, remember this? All of these, all of the kingdoms of the world have been given to me. They've been given to me. They were given by Adam and Eve. And I want you to notice something. When you read that, Matthew 4, Jesus uh, does not correct that statement. He doesn't say that's wrong because he knows it's right. So God gives the open deed to Adam and Eve. They lose it to Satan. But Jesus, who's the firstborn son who has the right of inheritance, it's all coming back to him anyway, decides to exercise his option and redeem it and buy it back. And Jesus bought the authority and the dominion of this world back 2,000 years ago. And you can read... It's really, it's a great read when you read Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, John says, And I looked and I saw in the hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll sealed. I think that's the sealed deed. And he said, and one of the elders said, one, a strong angel said, Who is worthy to take the seal and to the scroll and to break its seal or to loose its seal? And he says, I wept much because no one in heaven and earth was found worthy. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And it says he came forth and took the seal and opened it. And then they sang, worthy are you to receive glory and honor, riches and power because you have redeemed us. He had the inheritance and he had the right of redemption. You have redeemed us to God out of every tribe, tongue and nation, out of every ethnicity, you've redeemed us back to God and made us kings and priests. Jesus came back. Now listen to me. Here is the reason the sovereignty of God is a reason to pray, not to pray. People say, well, you just got to trust God's sovereignty. Whatever's going to happen, God's going to do it anyway. No, God gave us authority. We lost that authority to Satan. Jesus, the firstborn son came and got it back and then gave it back to us because this is what he said. When he said, I will build my church, I will build my church. He said, and I give you the keys to the kingdom so that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose in heaven will be loose on earth. The reason to pray is because we are praying to the supreme ruler of the universe who can do something about it, who can hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land. If my people will pray, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So the reason to pray is the sovereignty of God because we're praying to the one who's in charge. We're praying to the one who has the power to do something about it. Um, George Mueller, 
was a great missionary. And the thing that's most known probably about him is prayer. Uh, he, he lived a very sinful life until he was about 30 years old and um, came to Christ. And then he goes to missionary school because he wants to be a missionary. Then he goes, after he completes missionary school, he goes in front of the missionary board and they turn him down to be a missionary because he led too sinful of a life before he got saved. And so he said, Lord, what do I do? The Lord said, pray. So he prayed for one year, one year. And then the Lord said, now go to this city. So he he went to a city, he'd been saving for that year, went to a city, walked to the only church in that city and said, I'd like to speak to the pastor. And uh, they said, well, our pastor resigned last Sunday. He said, well, I I graduated from missionary school and God called me to be a missionary to this city. They said, you're hired. (laughs) He got there on the exact day that he should tell them that. He becomes the pastor. Then they start orphanages all the time. All he would do is pray. By the way, the first thing that he did was he implemented tithing because people were buying seats. That's how the church was making their money. People would buy seats and sit where they wanted to sit. Now, we're not going to talk about... You ever bought a seat? So, all right. So, but the, so, and so he implemented tithing and he said, we're not going to pass the plate because I want people to give out of a free will. He put boxes beside the doors. I actually thought that I invented that until I read his story. And then they started orphanages. And in the late 1800s, listen to this, their mission giving from this little church was seven and a half million Dollars. They started more orphanages than any missionary organization before or since. And all out of prayer. When he got saved, he had five friends, very close friends. He prayed for them. Three of them got saved in 10 years, took 10 years. He said he prayed every day for them. The fourth one got saved 25 years later. The fifth one, George Mueller lived 52 years after he got saved. He died before, right before his death, his friend heard him praying for this person he'd been praying for for 52 years. He died, and the person he was praying for came and knelt at his graveside and gave his life to Christ. Because God answers prayer. We pray to the supreme ruler of the universe. Well, here's the second doctrine that's misunderstood, the immutability of God. Again, look at the word for a moment. Immutability, mutable in the middle of the word means change. Something that is mutable can mutate. It can change. You put the I am on the front, it can't change. The immutability of God means it can't change. God can't change. Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord. I do not change. James 1, 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Let me read that to you in the New Living Translation, that last phrase, he never changes. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. So he never changes. So here's the problem. People misunderstand this doctrine and say, well, God never changes, so why pray? You need to understand what this means is God never changes his character. It doesn't mean that he never changes his mind. And we have instance after instance If this was a three-hour seminary class, I could take you through the whole three hours I could spend showing you where God changed his mind in Scripture when his people prayed. But I'll give you two two examples of it, all right? One is when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. He goes up on the mountain, and God says to him, get down. 
get down off this mountain, the people have already sinned. They've already sinned. They've made golden calves. They're saying that those golden calves are their gods, and those golden calves brought them out of Egypt. You go down, and here's what he said. I'm going to destroy all of them and start over with you. And that God said it. I am going to destroy all of them and start over with you. So you'd think if God said it, then it's going to happen. Here's what happens. Moses prays and says, God, please don't destroy them. Give them another chance. And then look at this verse, Exodus 32, 14. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. The Lord relented. Now, I want you to look at the word relented just for a moment. If you change one letter in that word, it's another word. Relented, take the L out and put a P in, and what do you have? Repented. Okay, now you'd say, well, God couldn't repent. Okay, listen to me. That's because you don't know the definition of the word repent. Many, many preachers have said repent means to turn from your sin. It doesn't mean turn from your sin. Sin is nowhere in the word. When you go to the actual word, it's not in there. It's not what it means. It says God relented. It's the same as the word repented. Now, you say, well, but it says relented. You can't say repented. Well, it's in the Old Testament 108 times. 41 of those times it's translated repented. 38% of the time that it's in there, it's translated repented. Okay? So God repented. Okay. You say, well, how could God repent? Because we think repent means to turn from your sin. doesn't mean that. It means to change your mind. That's what it means. If you take the Greek uh, uh, word that's similar to this Hebrew word, uh, you have metanoia, which is the Greek word for repentance. It means change your mind. Or metanoia, which is the verb repent, means change the way you think. Change your thinking, change your mind. Okay. Here's all this is saying. So God changed his mind. God, you read it. Read it later, Exodus 32. I didn't have time to read the whole thing. God said, I am going to destroy them all and start over you. Moses prayed, and God relented. God changed his mind because a believer prayed. So the immutability of God's a reason to pray. Let me show you another, another instance because God's character kept changed. This will really um, illustrate it. Jonah, remember the book of Jonah? God tells him to go to Nineveh. He gets on a ship and goes to Tarshish, the opposite way of Nineveh. If you study a map, goes, but, and then the whale comes, all the stuff, the great fish, you know, all that happens. Okay, so then he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And here's what God says, preach. 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. You know what happened? It wasn't destroyed. And here's why. They repented. The people repented. Now, We'll pick it up. Jonah 3, verse 10 says, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented. Same word that's translated repented many times. Relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, you would think that Jonah would be happy about this. But the very next verse, it's chapter 4, but it's the very next verse, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, watch this. Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? 
Therefore, anytime you see the word therefore, it means this is the reason. You can put this is the reason. This is the reason that I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Okay, many people don't know this. They say, I don't don't know why Jonah went. I guess he just rebelled or he didn't want to preach. Maybe he feared for his life. No, he didn't fear for his life. He went the other way, and he says it right here. He says, was not this what I said? I told you this would happen. I knew I would come and preach judgment, and they would repent, and then you'd change your mind. (laughs) Because you're slow to anger and gracious and merciful and compassionate. And in essence, he's saying, and you can't change. That's who you are. You're a gracious God. If people repent, then you now listen, don't get hung up on this word. Then you repent. You relent. You change your mind. If people will change their mind, then you'll change your mind. It's, it's also funny, a great story. Uh, so God, he's Jonah now. He's sitting out in the, um, in the heat of the day, and he says what all prophets say when their prophecy doesn't come true. Might as well just die. <laughs> Might as well just die. By the way, all words from the Lord are submitted to the Lord of the Word. All words from God are submitted to the God of the Word. In other words, God can tell you to say something to get a person to repent, and then God can have mercy on that person. So God causes a plant to grow up in one day. A plant grows up one day to give Jonah shade. Then God creates a worm to eat the plant in one day. And Jonah gets mad because the plant dies, because the worm eats the plant. And here's what God said. Don't ever forget this. God said, you're upset because a plant that you didn't make died. And you don't think I would be upset over 120,000 people that I made dying. Speaking of Nineveh's 120,000 population. So please hear me. When we talk about the immutability of God, this is not a reason not to pray. This is a reason to pray because we're praying to the God who can't change. He can change his mind, but he can't change his character. And he's a loving, and he's a compassionate, and he's a merciful, and he's a graceful, gracious God, and he wants to have mercy on us if he can get one person to agree with him. Here's what he said to Ezekiel. I wanted one, just one, I looked, I looked, I looked, I looked for one man, just one man who would stand in the gap and make up the heads that I would not destroy them. But I found no one. I just needed one believer to stand in agreement with me. You, you, you got to understand, God can do anything. He has, he's the supreme ruler of the universe and he never changes. So why is our nation in such a fix? Because we, the church, have not prayed. What about the fix that you're in, your family? I was um, in a prophetic presbytery meeting one time, and there was an older lady uh, by herself, and I got this word. I said, you know how to pray. You know how to pray. And I said, you're going to teach younger ladies how to pray. And this was the prophetic word that the Lord gave me. You are going to teach how to, how, younger ladies how to pray for their unbelieving husbands to come to Christ. So after the prophecy, and the congregation started clapping because they knew her story, afterwards, 
Clark said, after the service, he said, I want, I want her to come tell you why everyone knew what you were saying was true. So she came up, and here's what she told me. Her husband, she'd been married to him for 42 years, and he was an unbeliever. She prayed every day for 42 years for him to come to Christ. One day, he was on a business trip in Florida, and he was killed in a car accident. About a month after he was killed, her phone rang, and this man on the phone said, is so-and-so there? Ask for her husband. She said, no, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, uh, he's passed away. He, he died in a, in a car accident about a month ago in Florida. And the guy got kind of quiet, and he said, did you say he died about a month ago in a car accident in Florida? She said, yes. He said, was it on this day? And he said, the date. She said, yes, it was. He said, did you get to talk to him that day? She said, no, I did not. He would always call me at at night when he got to the hotel room. He said, ma'am, I have good news for you. He said, I'm a businessman. I wear a suit and tie to work. I work downtown in an office building. And God would not leave me alone that morning. And God spoke to me to go out to the highway and park my car and put my thumb out. And your husband came by. And I shared Christ with your husband. And your husband accepted Christ before he was killed in that car accident. I met this lady. Clark Whitten can verify this story. She prayed. And you know who she prayed to? She prayed to the supreme ruler of the universe who is a merciful and compassionate God. I really believe that God wants to take us to a new level of prayer. I want you to think about this. I know we say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? I still want you to do that. But I want you to think about a a reasonable amount of time, reasonable, don't, don't put it out there at three hours or something, but 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day, I want us all to hear the Lord and set aside time to pray every day. And some of us have that already, a quiet time, and then we pray, but maybe God wants to lengthen the prayer part. So I want you to, to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? about prayer. And let the Holy Spirit answer that. He might answer it today. He might answer it this week, but let him answer that for you.